Summer, 2013. Rehearsals for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. This was the pantomime season where I first met Shane McMillan, today's author. And it was also the first show... Can I pause you? Because yeah. it's McMullen. 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 And it's kind of good because I... T- <laughs> you probably heard this Gabby sound. I just... I've got a gum and it's... It's quite rude to chew gum and talk. Yeah. And I remember when I was having um, my speech therapy when I was a youngster. Yeah, they'd say never... Ryan, Ryan should especially never chew gum mm-hmm. if he's speaking. <laughs> they especially told me that, so... Oh yeah. Anyway, and it was also the first show where I was introduced to the notion that a director must play with his cast. Playing in the sense of exploring or experimenting in a focused environment with different attitudes, qualities, movement and voice. (laughs) As, As he breaks his voice. In my opinion, there is a playful quality that Shane brings to any room. Now, to showcase my stalking skills... I will give a biographical recital. (laughs) Shane has been a theatrical artist and educator in Perth, Western Australia for over 10 years. Shane is a qualified high school drama teacher with experience at Wilton Senior High School, John Curtin College of the Arts and Ellenbrook Secondary College. Shane has also earned a diploma in film and television. Shane has also spent time travelling around Europe studying with Commedia dell'arte master Antonio Fava in Italy and very briefly the International Theatre School of Jacques Lecoq in Paris, France. He has been part of the Into the Mask Theatre since 2011 and performed and wrote in multiple shows including Una Lettera um, di Amore, Birthday Bash, Pinocchio, Fremantle Festival 2012, Hipster Time... <laughs> and wrote, directed, and performed in Perfection v Infection, Fringe World 2013. This show does not include live nude girls, Fringe World 2014. A Midsummer's Night Dream, what? Fringe World Festival 2015. And in 2017, he directed Yellow Belly, a Fringe Festival show where I got my first taste of performing in Commedia dell'arte. Shane, welcome. <laughs> oh, I'm so embarrassed listening to you talk about me. <laughs> oh, please don't. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. It's so... <laughs> um, yeah, very briefly, Jacques Lecoq, very brief. I don't want to play that up. For... And, you know, some of those shows... Uh... <laughs> Bring back memories? Yes, they're, they're quite old and, um, and like quite silly, and you know. But they're part of my history, so yeah. <laughs> they're part of your task... Tapestry. Yeah, it's a tapestry. Tapestry. <laughs> the show does not include live nude girls. <laughs> what was oh. that about? Because when I was researching... It was, <laughs> it, was a, it was about nothing. No, it was an improvised comedy <laughs> with a heavy influence in Commedia dell'arte. So we're using masks, but not, not strictly speaking, not Commedia dell'arte. Just an improv show where anything could happen except live nude girls. But, um, essentially. But anything else, you know, could happen. So it was a lot of fun. It was very silly. I worked with some really, really wonderful people and we laughed a lot. A lot. So I have fond, fond memories of what turned out to be an insane show. What is the art of comedy? Ah, oh, 
I was trying to make a pun of Commedia yeah. dell'arte. Yeah, well, but... it is the art of comedy. Or the uh... well, look, for, it's very interesting. So for me, it's it is about formula, mm. which for so many people, I don't know, like the creative, the creative world, you know, is about breaking formula and you know being free and fluid and and uh, you know change and and no two things the same. But for me, I don't know. I love I love formula. In everything I look at, like I'm, I'm constantly looking at the formula and the structure, and Commedia dell'arte is is a it's a structure to work with, and that's and that's what I love. So that's what comedy is for me, which is strange. I'm kind of like in a little ship all to myself in this desire for structure. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, I have to first say that I mentioned Yellow Belly and. To me, well, obviously is my uh, Fringe Festival debut, but also my debut in Commedia dell'arte. And I found it, it's a really, for the kids listening, I found it a really interesting art form to practice because, yeah, it is liberating, it is freeing, you do... It's in, yeah, there's an interesting relationship with formula, mm. especially when, or if, you wear, um, especially the masks, yeah, which... I have to say, Shane also, he makes masks um, with, with leather, with actual leather, and yes. it's really nice. And, and please, um, I have to... Now, I'm not being sponsored in any way, shape, or form. This is just purely <laughs> coming from a fan and a lover. Just look look into into the mask uh, theatre. Um, they've got, like, obviously, the, the website, Facebook. Please do have a look. And and if you're a school, they... they you're making masks, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole idea and our new avenue for the, you know, for a theatre company for, like ours is to make slapsticks, make masks, and and just kind of grow the love and appreciation of Commedia dell'arte through schools first. So you know, a lot of teenagers we, we run workshops for, and hopefully then you know over the next decade or so, those teenagers will grow up to be adults who appreciate. The art form that we love so much. I find you interesting, Shane. <laughs> it's I, I find you particularly interesting because you not only practice um, art in a sense, but you practice in education. Yeah. What do you get from educating, you know, young kids who, you know, drama students? Well, yeah, it's interesting because I'm like, you know, my most of my uh, education myself has been in teaching mm. rather than the arts. So, you know, I am a teacher. In, in so many ways, like, fir- you know, first I'm a teacher and second I'm an artist in many, many regards. So there's just something lovely about, uh, like, you know, I go into a workshop, I go into a room with students and they know nothing about Commedia dell'arte and, and by the time we finish, you know, maybe I have three hours with them or maybe I see them for an hour or two a week, you know, for a series of weeks. But by the time I finish, you know, I, they've changed the way they use their bodies and they have this appreciation for an art form that, they had never heard about before and would never have heard about if I didn't enter that space. And that's just, I don't know, like it's... Education, I think, is the most human thing. Yeah. I, th- I think it's the most human quality uh, of, of everything we as a species do. Education comes first, you know? Like other, other species, they learn to do things, right? I mean, a, you know, a kitten will learn to hunt mice... I just got a kitten. Um, <laughs> so, you know, a kitten will learn to, you know, hunt mice from its parents and, and it'll, it'll spend its life perfecting that, that thing, but it'll never go past what their parents teach them. 
and then the new kids will come in and they will learn, but they never go beyond. Mm. They only learn what they need to learn. But humans, we learn everything that we get taught and then we go one step further and we learn something new. So with every generation, you know, education and our knowledge and our understanding of the world takes these big, big steps forward. And I think that is what defines us as a species. And that's, I mean, that's a, a lot of, I want to say wank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can say fuck shit, this asshole. Yeah, so it's, um, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of wank, you know, to to sit back and reflect on education as as the most fundamental part of the human race. Um, you know, if you kind of analyze it like that, you know, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but I think truly, fundamentally, I think it is. So it's an honor to be a part of that education, and I love it, and I love working with young people and seeing them sort of, you know, learn through play and laughing and entertainment. And at the end of the day, you know, I leave and, and they've all had so much fun learning. And I often, like, I get emails or I get, like, you know, we get Facebook comments or whatever. Mm. And, you know, we hear from the teachers that we've been running these workshops for that the students, you know, they talk about it for weeks and weeks after I've left you know, and how much fun it is. And that's like the best thing they've ever done mm. at the school. And, oh man, I'm like, I'm getting all embarrassed. No, 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 but, <laughs> but, it's, but they love it. And see, I love that they love it. And that reminds me like, yeah, this art form that I'm chasing, this, this passion that I have, you know, it's not for nothing because even though like, you know, it's called a dead art form, mm. it's still so entertaining. Yeah. And it's a perfect vehicle for art today and that's why everyone that I introduce to this art form falls in love with it. It's really interesting because another thing I want to bring up with you is about adapting classics. Because I remember mm -hmm. in passing when we were doing Yellow Belly, I think it was during rehearsals or uh, performance one night, you wanted to adapt a, a Moliere play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I want to learn more about Moliere. Mm. I think that's... That's what I want to do. Like, I, I love to read old plays, and, I, and then I, and I want to learn more about them, which then makes me go, like, I can adapt that. Oh, I can use this. Oh, this is a perfect stimulus for a modern audience, you know? So I'm not going to, like, pretend to be, like, some expert on Moliere. I yeah, think yeah. I want to adapt Moliere because I want to learn Moliere. <laughs> like, I'd imagine if I were to do this, just, just looking, just stepping back, I'd be very... Obviously, all all of us think you know we are, we are part skeptics, mm. and I'd be like a bit I'd be a bit hesitant uh, teaching kids or adapting a classic, or because I'm a lover of the classics, I love the works of William Shakespeare. Yeah, just like introducing. Well, I don't know why I've got my uh, kids on the brain, but yeah, you know, kids. That's what's what it's part of what I do, so it makes sense. Yeah, but I, oh God, I'd be like this old. It's not dead because I was going to say this old dead Italian art form, but it's not dead. Yeah. I, I, yeah. There is a through line. So Antonio Fava, who's my teacher, my master in Italy, he will, he will always say, Commedia never died. Hmm. It never died. You know, it adapted and it shifted and it was always a shifting art form. Early Commedia is very, very different to late Commedia 300 years later. But he, you know, his father was a professional Pulcinella performer. Hmm. And Pulcinella is a character of the Commedia dell'arte in the South, in, in Naples and in Calabria and that's what his father did and that's what his father's father did so there is, he says, you know there is this through line where it continued and he is part of that lineage so he doesn't like people to call it a dead art 
but you know I'm not in a position to argue against what everyone else has kind of agreed upon so Antonio Fava he's in that position you know he can argue but for me it's like well everyone else historically says it was a dead art form so you know who am I to disagree <laughs> but yeah, it, de it definitely continued, and, and Pulcinella is alive and well in the south mm. of Italy, um, usually through marionette puppets, but it, it continues. I want to talk a little bit about um, like Antavia, Antonio Fava, because mm. one of the reasons why I um, wanted to do the show with Shane Yellowbelly, because I have a fear of masks. I didn't know this. Only because <laughs> the reasons why I have fear of masks, not in Camino dell'Arte, but um, I've used it... Uh, when I was studying, mm -hmm. like neutral mask, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, and and also in a sense of uh, clowning with the nose. The only reason why I'm scared or was scared was because I th there's so much uh, reverence, right, of of the mask. I see. So you you're not scared of the mask in the way that like people are scared of clowns, no. but more like a fear of, of like, am I like am I worthy? To, to, to do this art form? Like, that, have I learnt enough? That, Who I'm, am I to take on these traditions? Is it that kind of fear? That too, but also wearing the mask and having that sort of physical reminder that you are uh, an actor playing a character. Mm. And I, I get claustrophobic right. wearing the masks. But I, I don't know, but whatever, what sort of... Well, I don't want to use the word cued me, is... Um, oh, I remember rehearsals one time, you're talking about Antonia Father, about how... What, what's this? Uh, so, what's so this? yeah. So traditionally, you know, you you must, you must, uh, you know, they say treat the mask with all this respect, yes, yeah. and and um, you know, the mask is you know has its own soul. Yeah. And when the mask maker makes the mask, they wipe the sweat from their brow, <laughs> and they work it into the leather while it's still wet. So a part of them is forever in the mask, and there's all these you know these yeah. sort of like all theatre has superstition and. And you know magic and stories like this, and, and he talks a lot about how they say you can never put your fingers through the eyes of the mask because it's like you're stabbing the mask maker in the eye, or you know, all this yeah. kind of stuff. And Antonio Fava, he's he's just very practical, and he's not interested in these superstitions at all. You know, he's so forward thinking. And and I remember one day we're sitting there making masks. I learned to make masks with him. And then you know, it's right at the end and he and he takes someone's mask and he's explaining all this you know, all these rules to us and then he's like, Oh, and it's rubbish, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous and he pokes his fingers through the eyes of the mask. He's like, Look, look, the mask maker's standing right there and he's fine. He's okay, like it's not gonna matter. Um and it was He's just a very funny man, and he's, mm. I mean, his whole way he carries himself, everything he does, everything he says, yeah. is done with this sense of humour, because that's been his whole life. Uh, and so then when I'm doing, you know, the main international course with him, he goes through a whole series of Lazi, of gags and scenarios, you know, where you, you stab the character in the eye with your fingers straight through the mask, because you can, you yeah. know, because it's not a human face... And you can put your fingers into the eyes of the mask. Like it's the perfect, it's the perfect thing to do for comedy. So it was really important to him to to challenge that convention because there was humour to be had, and humour must come first. Entertainment must come first when we create art, or uh, if not entertainment, certainly something compelling. In in comedy, in commedia dell'arte, that compelling thing is humour. In other art forms, it might not be humour. It might not be entertainment, but it has to be something that's 
fascinatingly gratitude. We don't see a lot of in some Perth contemporary art scenes. People want to be, you know, shocking or mm. or they want to be challenging. They want to be different and they forget to be interesting. I guess. Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. Not all the time. Now I'm being mean to people. I'll, I'll take that back. I apologise. No, but I think there's... Um... No, no, I think this, because this is the um, ever asking question, you know, what is the purpose of art? You know, can, can art change the world? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I think it would be foolish of an artist to sit there and say, I hmm. will change the world. I, I, like in that case, no. But I think the world will change the world, hmm. and art is just part of the world, you know? So everything shifts and moves. Everything is fluid in the, in the world. Um, and the world's going to change over time. So what we put into the world will affect the way that the world changes. So if you're an artist making art, then you just have to be mindful of how you are influencing the fluidity of the world. And is it for the better or the worse? Or, you know. So I think in that sense, in a very small sense, yes. In a grand sense, no. It's probably best left for politics. And even that, you know, some people will argue can't really change the world because it's kind of the same thing, you know. Politics just reflects the world. I don't know, did I even answer that question? No, <laughs> or is it... Or, or, or that reminds me of that um, saying, what is it, uh, bloody hell, it makes, I don't know, it makes me kind of angry when, I think it was Barnaby Joyce who said, I don't know, some, this is like an old saying, it's like um, yeah. politics, uh, Politics is for ugly actors. Uh, yeah, art, art for ugly people. Art for ugly yeah, people. Yeah. I don't think Barnaby Joyce gets credit for that. I think that's a much older song. Yeah. Politics is performance art for ugly people, maybe. Something like that. That's been floating around for a while. Yeah. But I'm thinking there's some... Actually kind of thinking, you know, there's some good-looking politicians, I think. Well, I think that the, I think the line between performing <laughs> art and politics is getting more and more blurry. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we have artists... Um, performers who enter politics and we have politicians who treat policy like a performance as well um, yeah blurred lines for, certainly so it makes sense that attractive politicians can get a little further yeah. you know it's not so you have to be attractive now to be a politician certainly don't but um, it helps it does help and it's really interesting I'm not sure if you're well, Shane is very political, but I'm not sure. Have you been I'm following? Not to be. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen like anything about the British election? I've certainly followed a lot of the British election. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm just a big fan of of progressive left politics in general. So the one thing I love about the British, because yeah, obviously about you, you see these pictures like um, I'm not sure when this goes to air. Hopefully in a couple of weeks. Um, it might be old news by then. <laughs> no. The world will have fallen apart in a couple of weeks and there'll be new things to talk about. Uh, it's really interesting. Like You get to see, like it's very old-fashioned like how they announced the, 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 the member of the parliament, you know, the MPs, 
and they all stand in line and they say 3,000 votes, so this guy, for this, mm. blah, blah, blah. But you get these, like, um, people from the fake parties, like Lord, <laughs> Lord well, I'm not sure if they're fake or real, but like Lord Buckethead, uh, Mr. Fishfinger. Um, I didn't see this. Yeah, Mr. Fishfinger. Like like donkey votes sort of thing that well, go towards these like comic characters. They actually run though. It's really yeah, yeah. it's really weird. Like they run and like Mr. Fishfinger was a guy in a fishfinger thing. Costume. And like some of his policies you uh, agree. Um, but like he would say like um, if I'm elected I will petition uh, for fish to have passports. You know, weird <laughs> thing. But then you've got um, Lord... <laughs> Lord Monster something or other in his party and like they got like some really weird because they got really some progressive policies hmm. but then they play with the absurdity of um, oh, I can't remember these are those policy. blurred lines we were talking about yeah, yeah, between yeah. politics and performing arts um, yeah, I didn't see any of it for the British election but there's a one guy he's great I can't remember his name now but he's been running as US president for you know 20 years or something and he wears yes. a, a boot on yes. his head and he calls it Vermin Lord Ver- no. Lord, yeah, Lord Vermin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! I mean, it's just great. I mean, you know, I, I see his stuff pop up on my Facebook or yeah. on YouTube or whatever. You know, every every four years now for the last few election cycles. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of you know it calls into question the 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 state of politics and you know the truth behind our democracies and and are they really as democratic as we like to believe they are, you know? Uh, so I think, they, I think they have a really important role in, in a democracy. You know, making fun of politics is so important. Mm. Uh, yeah. free, that's why free speech is so important. That's a whole other very complicated debate, um, free speech, because it's, it's one that we're having in Australia now. I don't know if our listeners are, are sort of into politics, but there's kind of two, two opposing arguments that have been going head-to-head for the last sort of... 12 months or so and and one is is saying um you know free speech is fundamentally important and nothing can challenge it and the other is saying free speech doesn't mean speech without consequence you know you, you can't be free to discriminate or attack somebody you know based on on their race or religion and and I don't pretend to have an answer to any of that because mm. it is super super complicated and very very fascinating uh, so I won't I won't put forward an opinion on that because I think it just kind of comes down to this idea of, I mean, I think it's important that we're able to criticise certainly our politics and the powers of society and the people, you know, with the most power need to remain open to criticism and therefore that free speech is important. I don't want to see people without power being kicked while they're down, but um, that's where the complexity of it all comes in. But anyway, let's get back to to vermin and, uh, and, and Lord Fishstick. That's more uh, fish, um, Well, it's really... But, uh, like, talking about... You, you, you just reminded me of... There's this recent film come up. Um, um, the, the American director, Oliver Stone, mm-hmm. has done a documentary on Vladimir Putin. Oh, I'm not sure fascinating. Really interesting. Um, it's basically him interviewing him for over two years. One-on-one, basically, interview. Wow. And Oliver Stone asks... You know, all the big questions, like, obviously, did Russia hack yeah. the American election? And did Russia, you know, I mean, hold their own fair democratic elections? Because that's, you know, one of the big things. It's very, very hard to trust that someone is an elected official. Yeah. Really, I mean, it, 
it used to be, you know, in third world countries, it was harder to trust that they were elected officials or certain third world countries. And, and uh, over time, it's becoming more and more questionable, even in some of these big world influencing powerful countries, you know, how true is the democracy? Russia's one of them. Turkey just mm. had a referendum that many people will argue was not held fairly yeah. um, after a failed coup, which uh, has been a long Turkish tradition. You have the US election, which which has really sort of been thrown into doubt by a lot of media. I, I, I would think, before I criticise other countries, I have to say, Australia is so fortunate and we are so lucky. I don't think people realise how yeah. lucky we are. We have a preferential voting system, which means that I can vote for a third party mm. and not throw my vote away. Um, so anyone listening to this, I don't know, if you, if you take our democracy for granted, if you don't like our system, I think it's really important that you look at some other countries. And, you know, I'll tell you, in the last US election, uh, I reckon Americans would have loved the ability to vote for a third option and not throw their vote away. You know, still let their vote go to the lesser of two evils, but have their voice really heard because that's a big problem with the US system. I really agree, and I think it's bloody ridiculous. Just quickly wanted to say about the whole college, the electoral college. The electoral college, yeah, that's. I mean, so the way I follow politics really, really closely. I um, I don't mind the the electoral college as a as a yeah. system, but I think it needs to be reformed. I think, you know, they talk about the. Electoral College giving a voice to small states. And, uh, you know, US isn't like Australia. Obviously, they have so many states. Am I okay for voting? No, 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 you're good. I'm just yeah. checking up a time. Cool, cool. Oh, yeah. 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 Look, no, we're no, not no, even no. talking about art no. anymore. But no, 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 let me, no, no. Let me no, now just... justify my defence of the Electoral College system. Um, and it's not a defence of Trump, certainly, because he's <laughs> an orange nightmare. Um, but, I, but, you know, the, the Republicans usually talk about it giving a voice to small states and people in small states... Because otherwise, you know, these big coastal elite states can just, you know, bully the rest of the country around with their, you know, big numbers. Which, uh, <laughs> you know, they, I don't yeah. like their argument. I think it's because they make fun of the blue states. They make fun of coastal elites. And I think that weakens their argument. But I think there is something nice about parts of the country that could easily be ignored. Don't mm. get ignored. So... As a, as a general concept, I don't mind the Electoral College. But what I think needs to happen is it needs to be reformed. So, I mean, who cares what I think it's US, about US politics? They're never going to listen to me. But, you know, <laughs> I'm going to explain anyway. Because I like to. Because I love politics. So I think that, you know, a state's... It shouldn't go... You know, every vote of the Electoral College shouldn't go to the winner of the state, you know? But I think it should be split. So, for example, if... if um, if you have a state, uh, let's say there's 10 seats of the Electoral College, 10 votes of the Electoral College, to make the numbers nice and easy, and if the state goes, you know, 51-49, well, then the winner gets six and the loser gets four. Yeah. So there's still a kind of, there's like an, there's a benefit to winning a state. Like, mm. that contested seat at the point where it's like 50-50, you know, where any, any sort of middle thing goes towards the winner. So effectively, you know, if you were to win every state, then you'd win an extra 50 votes yeah, yeah. In, in that sense because you get that one swing vote. So that way you can kind of have like a, a system that then strengthens the importance of winning a small state, right? Because mm. a small state's going to have a bigger weight yeah. in terms of that free vote. So that gives it some credence and some strength, but you don't get a system where your vote 
in a red state or a blue state doesn't matter and only your vote in a swing state matters, which is what happens now. You know, there are really only eight states that matter or maybe there's, maybe there's 12 states that kind of matter but maybe only six to eight in any given election that kind of matter because the rest are leaning one way too strongly. And that's because that's a big problem. You know, and that's why people don't go out to vote in the US because the truth is it doesn't matter and that's not a democracy anymore. So, but why, why am I talking about this? No, no, but no, it's, it's scary because what, what is really scary, I'm talking about the French, we recently had the French election mm-hmm. and I heard... The two, two vote system, you yeah. vote once and you vote another time, which yes. is kind of like our preferential voting system with easier counting but twice as much work. For the people, which I think so, it's close. It's hmm. getting there. It's not bad, but it's not as good as ours. What was scary Come was on. I'm I... not a patriotic person, <laughs> for the record. But man, do I love the way our democracy is run. Mm. Um, Fresh democracy. <laughs> yeah. No, but one thing that scared me about the French, because see, I, 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 in a way, I, I think voting should be cons- be compulsory. Mm. Only because I think was it now not the French presidential election, but now they they're voting for their parliament in, all their members and you know yeah, ministers and what have you. And I believe only like fifty percent of the whole entire country voted, which is more than the US. <laughs> it's so low. But isn't that scary? Only fifty yeah. percent. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing. We we have compulsory voting, which people complain about, but you know it keeps us engaged. Yeah. To a certain degree. I mean, as engaged as Australians are with our attitude of like, oh, whatever, she'll be right. <laughs> Fuck it. Um, for, a, for a country that's so apathetic towards politics, we manage to be somewhat engaged in a, in a nicer way. So, yeah, I mean, we're apathetic for three years and then we're engaged for six to eight months. But if we didn't have compulsory voting, you know, we would just be apathetic the whole time. So... For us, at least, for our culture, I think it works. People can disagree with me, and I'm sure you'd have a case for saying why compulsory voting isn't a good idea. You can put forward a very good argument, but I have my mind made up. I have to say, uh, listeners, uh, I know this is a bit of a hodgepodge of a podcast and random things appear, <laughs> but that's, that's the nature of, I think, healthy conversation. Hmm. So, I'd like to ask... Shane, <laughs> as we hear We've got a there. cat here with us. I don't know if you can hear the purr and the bell. What makes Perth special to practice one's art? <sighs> Boy, I've heard people say if you can make it in Perth, you can make it anywhere. Oh. Like it's a hard city to to succeed in, and I think that goes for everything, for art, mm. for business, mm. you know, for all sorts of fields. I mean, I was talking to a, a business many years ago now before I was kind of taking my arts career seriously, uh, I was a, a local business owner, multi-millionaire, very successful man. And that's what he said to me. You know, mm. He said, if you can make it in Perth, then you can make it anywhere because succeeding in Perth is difficult. You know, We have a small population. We have a very, very, very long suburban stretch, yeah. which means that your, um, your market for any given area, you know, so if you're an artist or if you're a performer like us, theatre, then you, for the most part, you really only perform in the city centre. So even though Perth is a city of two million people, for, for some, the city is over an hour away. Yeah. And they're actually not a target audience for you. So it makes our city, our target audience, even smaller. 
smaller and smaller and smaller the more you kind of analyze it. So that's something that's very unique, probably not very unique to Perth, but, but, but is a part of Perth's culture, this suburban stretch, and that, that influences things. But in terms of the positivities of Perth, mm. for a long time, I don't know if this is going to change now, but certainly for the last 10 to 15 years, what has been uniquely Perth is um, the cashed-up bogan. And, uh, and I say this with great love because I come from a family where I could have very easily been a, a cashed-up bogan. You know, uh, that, that if I didn't fall in love with drama when I was 15 years old, um, I probably would be a cashed-up bogan. So, um, it's great, you know, but this is uniquely Perth. And I think for the, for, you know, the early part of my career, you know, I was creating, you know, these silly fringe comedies and what you had were these people who had never really been into art, had never been to the theater, had never engaged in any way with culture in, in, in the way that they grew up. Now having this sort of, you know, excess disposable income and coming out to something like the Fringe Festival and going, hey, like, I want to see what it's all about. Yeah. Because the money didn't matter. Like, you, they could pay $20 for a ticket. If it wasn't a good show, no big deal, right? Because they had $20 to spare. So I think that we were able to engage in an aspect or a part of our community that didn't historically engage with art and culture. And that's great. I mean, that's like, man, that's the dream, you know? If you think about the biggest art movements through history, art has been for the, for the, for the poor, for the regular, yeah. you know, for your everyday people, not for the wealthy. And for a period in Australia, our art was becoming something for the wealthy. And thanks to the cashed up bogan, we got to bring art back to the regular people. And it's pretty special. I think, yeah, Fringe World has, yeah, definitely helped, assisted. Mm. I say a lot of really, really wonderful things about Fringe. I can... I could speak positively for a long time because it's been great for the culture, the art culture in Perth. What's in your many, relationship many with Fringe? My personally? Yeah. Oh. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like as a as a company? Do you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've performed in every Fringe festival now. I think, barring the first, which may have been 2011, 2012, and I think they only had about maybe 14, 12, 14 performers or something like that. It was. You know, it was art rage, kind of trailing this idea of, of just trying to get people out to some shows all in this sort of one week or two week period. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't quite the Fringe Festival as we know it, it was just towing the water. But the next year after that, I'm pretty sure that's when I did my first Fringe show and, and I've been involved every year after that. And it's, some, it's funny because it was easy when it started, you know, I mean, it was like 130 shows and... Two million tickets sold, you know, something. Yeah. <laughs> well, not two million tickets sold, because I don't think you could have, but you know, two million heads in attendance. So, you know, if people didn't see a show, they at least came out to the festival grounds and, and they bought a drink or two and they hung out under the stars, you know, in the park, which then encouraged them to come back another night and actually see a show. Yeah. But, you know, it was like two million sort of attendance to this, you know, the festival grounds. Uh, with 130 shows, and then now you know you come five years later, mm. and it's like um, I want to say like 700 shows. Yeah, you know, immense, and and maybe like four million heads in attendance. Mm. But you know, so the the rate of shows has grown faster than the rate of attendance because mm. the city's only 
so big. So, you know, you can't, it's hard to grow any faster. So that's made it harder. It's made it harder to promote your show. It's made it harder to gain traction. It's made it harder to sell a show. And obviously, like, you know, money in the arts is always going to be a hard thing. Mm. But it's just an added challenge. But most importantly, I think the biggest challenge for the Fringe Festival now with, with, uh, with how big it's become, it's actually made it really hard to get reviewers and to get those solid reviews. And that was kind of the currency of Fringe. Like, you know, I, I remember going in and my goal was make my money back and get a great review. You know, it was never mm. like, oh yeah, I can make $10,000 in ticket sales for this month. Woohoo. Mm. But your currency was get some solid reviews and take the show further. Mm. Right? But now, boy, it's hard just to get, you know, a, yeah. a, a number of reviewers into your show so that you can get, you know, a list of great quotes and maybe, you know, a four or five star. Um, you know, to put on your flyer for the next time you do it. That's the biggest. That's the biggest problem. That's the hardest thing. Um, and I think it's only getting worse because the the big newspapers in town are, uh, you know, slashing their budgets. And, yeah. And slashing their staff and you know, and a blog, a review on a blog doesn't hold as much water. Doesn't hold as much weight. As much gravity. <laughs> as a. <laughs> As a review, you know, in the West Australian or, yeah. or the Sunday Times or whatever. So, yeah, I, I think, boy, I, I don't know. I mean, if I could give one piece of advice to the Fringe Festival, mm. or to, not to the Fringe Festival, because I think they, they've got their own, they yeah. are their own thing, but to Rage, which is like the, the funding body and the overseer of the Fringe Festival, Rage, I would suggest sponsoring, building and creating a, a, a website that can review and respond and reflect yeah. on art in Perth in a way that allows its name to have some gravity because that's what artists need now. Mm. That's, what, that's what we're missing. Gaining that traction is so difficult without a reputable review. So, you know, there's a dozen blog sites, there's a dozen, you know, little places that are review, and there are a mm. hundred, if not more, people who can write a quality review, but unless their name uh, as a reviewer has some, has some weight behind it, yeah. then, man, it's just tough. So, I don't know, did I answer my question? What is my relationship to the Fringe Festival? I get yeah, distracted, yeah, that's, I go that's, on tangents. Because no, <laughs> I think in a previous um, episode, chapter, oh many years ago, episode? yeah, episode, um, I was talking to a Susie Conti, and she's yeah. a director, and she runs Tempest Theatre. Yeah, yeah. And, because, yeah, we... I don't know. Yeah, we, we were talking about... Yeah, critics. Mm. I think there is, like... Because I know, like, the biggest critic I know is David Zampati. David Zampati. Uh, from West Australian. Who no longer works. Um, uh, correct oh. me if I'm wrong, but he might not actually work for the West Australian anymore. He might now just be their go-to freelance reviewer. Oh. Uh, now, I, I'm not down exactly with the politics of, of newspapers and employment. So, you know, if someone's listening and I'm wrong, I apologise. Take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I think, I think now, like, he has his own blog uh, page and he'll write for that and then the and West then... Australian will pick up his thing and pay him. Uh, more of a freelance, which makes it a little less consistent. Or you might get David Zampati, the top reviewer in the state, coming to your show... But it never gets the newspaper badge. You know, you can't put the West Australian Review on your flyer, even though you've got the reviewer 
from the worst Australian, you know, the top dog. But I don't know, now I've said it, I feel like maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm confusing something, maybe I'm misunderstanding. So take that with a grain of salt mm. or edit it and cut this out or, <laughs> or no, leave no, it no. in and make me look silly. I don't no. know, that's your call. <laughs> Politics. And I also wanted to bring this up. Now we're on the talk of Fringe. Yeah, great. Yeah. In a couple, I'm speaking with a Glenn Hayden, a local direct boy, well, actually practices in India. Okay. Um, and I think he's one of the first um, acting graduates at WAPA. Right. right. Really, really um, knows his from stuff. The, from the new course. No, no, old actor. Oh, like, right, the original, right, right. I think okay. one of the original. Wow. And he's okay. like, he's, and he's a really, really great uh, chapter, people. Um, it's chapter six, Jagad, which Jigard. is Hindu for to make something beautiful out mm. of muck. Yeah, great. That's, 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 a, that's nice. It's a, yeah. And we were talking about, I th- I don't know how we all st- was it. I don't know. We talked about the idea of what? What do you think, Shane? Like the mm. idea for French Festival? Mm. Do you think we need like a? There needs to be like a curate. What, would you oppose well, that idea of like to curate the whole? Entire? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I love that it's an open festival, and I think it should remain an open festival. Because how do you how do you choose between yeah. if you if you get. You know, I mean, at the moment, I think the numbers are somewhere around 700 shows. Let's let's just say they want to cut it down to 600 shows, right? Mm. And and then 800 people apply. I mean, how do you choose yeah. which of those are worthy when, you know, if you've got 800 applications, 700 of the shows are yet to be created, you know? It's difficult. Um, like and man, someone's yeah. going to miss out. That shouldn't. So, you know, they, they, only, they can only supply so many um, fringe venue spaces... And in a way, that's kind of a curating process, yeah. you know, and if you can't find your own space, well, eek, sorry, yeah. you know, here are other people who are curating for their venues, you can try them. So there kind of already is yeah. a curation that's happening, um, which can sometimes be really unfair. So, I mean, I think there is becoming more of an emphasis on already established interstate and international acts mm. for those, you know, coveted, wonderful, fringe-run fringe, fringe run yeah. venues, um, which a lot of local artists, are, you know, find themselves frustrated with. But I don't envy the fringe producers and organisers. They've got a difficult job, as it is, going through all of those applications and trying to figure out, you know, who do we give this limited space to, you know, as it is. So it kind of already is being curated, in a way, so... I wouldn't want any more curation. I think it needs to remain an open festival. I feel like I cut you off before you actually finished your question. No, that's it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> How was Into the Mask Theatre forged? Without me. <laughs> I wasn't there. I wasn't, I wasn't there when it began. Um, which is so funny because now it's like, I feel like it's mine. It's mine. <laughs> Everyone else can go away. It's, it's just my baby. Um, no, so uh, Alethea um, Drea used to be Alethea Bavalacqua. She got married. Um, so Alethea Drea at the uh, Bavalacqua at the time it doesn't matter. Alethea Ali. Um, she travelled to to Italy, and she worked with Antonio Fava. She did the course with him, mm-hmm. you know. And and like so many people, she came out of this course. It's so intense, you know. I mean, we were at the theatre nearly ten hours a day, five days a week. You know, for me, it was close to three months. Uh, for other people, it's not as long. It depends which combination of courses you do. Mm. But you, you know, you come out of this process, and and it's like, wow, this is the most incredible art form 
how how is everyone else not in love with this? Yeah, you know, and then everyone leaves. It's people all over the world come to Antonio Faba. Literally every continent but Antarctica um, <laughs> was covered when I was there. You know, uh, and yeah, and you and you walk out, and then everyone goes, and they just spread out across the world again. And everyone goes home, and they all do the same thing. They look around their hometown, they look around their city or their state or their country for other lovers of Commedia dell'arte. And if they can find them, there's this instant bond. And if you can't, then you go, but but who am I going to work with? And that's what Ali did. She came out and went like, who am I going to work with? And she went, well, I guess i got to grow this art form. So she started Into the Mask. She started running workshops at schools. She started finding actors who were interested in learning from her and training them up. Um, so that she had someone to play with, you know, effectively. It's like little kids, ah. you know, looking for a friend to play with. And that's what, that's what all art is, I think. It's playing. So, yeah. um, and I just happened to be one of the people that she played with. And that's how <laughs> I came to be a part of it. And I never left. <laughs> so I, I got, um, you know, I got this phone call. I had just, because, um, you know, I mean, you said at the start of the podcast, you know, I've worked with this school and that school and, you know, but as a teacher, when you come out of university, it's really, really hard to land a full-time job. So, you know, I was doing a semester here and a, a term there and, um, you know, kind of moving around from these wonderful schools. Oh, my goodness. I was so fortunate to work Willerton Senior High School, inc- an incredible school uh, with incredible students, wonderful staff, really dedicated drama teachers there. So big ups to them. Um, and then John Curtin College of the Arts. Yeah. I mean, I just fell into that like a lucky idiot. Um, <laughs> man, right place, right time. Yeah. That's a whole other story, how I managed to get some work there. We can get into it later yeah. if you like, but I'll try to stay on topic. Yeah. So anyway, so I came for this period where I just didn't have a school to work at. And I get this phone call from a friend of mine who's also a drama teacher and performer like me, um, Alex Roberts, over in Chicago at the moment, doing all the writing and the improv mm. stuff and He's having a great time. I can't wait for him to get back because he's one of these people I just want to play with. Yeah. And he gives me this phone call. And he's like, hey, I'm doing this like performance. It's, it's really easy. It's really short. It's going to be like 15 minutes for a group of uh, you know, drama students and drama teachers. Uh, do you want to do it? And I was like, oh, I've got, I got nothing else to do. And I don't have a job. So yeah. like, sure. You know, what is it? And he goes, oh, well, it's Commedia dell'arte. Do you know much about it? And I was like, um, in my head I'm going shit, yeah. shit, 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 shit when did I learn that? did I learn that? I think we did a little bit in high school crap and you know he kind of picked up on the hesitation in my voice and was like yeah we didn't do it at uni and I was like no we didn't I think I did something in high school and he goes yeah don't worry <laughs> don't worry like you'll get trained up yeah. and we'll do this show and I was like sure, sure why not <laughs> like I got nothing else to do and I'm bored so I'll yeah. do this show and I you know and I go and I play a lover and Ali trains me up, you know, just as a lover, nothing else. Just this is a mm. lover, because that's all we had time for to do this little show, because it made no money. Welcome to the arts. <laughs> and I just fell in love. I mean, we laughed. You know, we went for a couple of Sundays. We just spent a few hours, you know, at a university rehearsal space, putting this show together. Una lettera di more, mm. the letter of love. Mm. And I, honestly, I mean, I don't think I stopped laughing through every rehearsal. Like the bit, the hardest part about rehearsing was that we laughed too much. Yeah. Right. And that's what a tough problem to have. And, but something really special happened that I haven't, I haven't left the company since, and I've been a part of every show they've done since then. 
Um, but something really, really special happened at that point. I, for the first time since I was like 15, kind of like I had fun, mm. right? And I think, you know, I, I fell in love with drama, like as a teenager, like farting on stage, you know, making fart jokes and play fighting and doing this kind of, you know, that teenage boys are doing yeah. drama and all the drama teachers go like, oh, how can I get them to focus? Um, <laughs> you know, but I, but I fell in love with drama in, yeah. those, in those ridiculous years. Yeah. And then I, and I, I fell so madly in love that I really wanted to be serious, right? I was like, oh, well, I want to make serious art. Yeah. And, do, and you know, I love politics, so yeah. like, political art. <laughs> um, and then I, you know, I went and I studied film. Yeah. And I was like, and I'm going to make serious films. <laughs> um, and then I missed theatre so much while making serious films. Uh, so I went back to uni and I did some, you know, double degree in contemporary performance and education. Yeah. And, and the whole time was very serious about all the artwork. Lepage, he's so serious, he's so great. And the whole time just kept trying to be something that at the end of the day is not who I am. Like, I'm so, I'm so unfocused, and I'm so, I mean, <laughs> inside baseball, if you're familiar with that term, um, Ryan arrived today, and I was in a bathrobe at four o'clock in the afternoon, because I just couldn't get my day together. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, and that's who I am, like, I'm so, so scatterbrained, and so crazy, and so ridiculous, and, and so silly. I'm not a serious person. So, for, so, basically, long story short, for the first time... Since I was, you know, 14, 15, I had fun. Mm. And, and the story that we told was fun. And the characters were fun and the audience laughed the whole time. And it was just like this, oh man, what a feeling, you know? What a, what, I can't even describe what it's like to fall in love with something for the second time. Mm. And I haven't looked back since. It's, and that's been like my life. And I was like, right, well, every play that, that yeah. Ali's doing, I'm doing. And then... You know, before long, I was like, what do you mean, Ali? What do you mean you don't want to direct another show right now? What? Well, then I'll do it instead. I'll just direct the show. I'll make this work. You know, uh, you know I'm, going to, I'm going to Italy, Ali. It's going to be fine. I'm going to go to Italy. I'm going to work with Antonio Fava. I'll come back. We'll make a show. Don't you worry about it. You know, and I did. Ali said one day, you know, in a rehearsal, we, you know, we didn't have a mask that we needed, I think. Mm. Um, we had to shift our characters. We didn't have a mask. And she was like, man, I wish we could make masks. I was like, don't worry, Ali, I got this. I'll learn how to make masks. It's fine. Don't forget about it. I went home that day and like on YouTube, how to make a mask, yeah. you know, and I just kind of taught myself and they're, they're terrible. These masks I, you know, made myself from YouTube tutorials were a joke. Um, <laughs> whew, boy, did I kill some cows a second time that day. I mean, the leather was awful, awful. The things I did to it was slaughter. But it was like, you know, after I did this one 15 minute show, you put it on the list of yeah. shows I've done, you know, doesn't really count it was a little 15 minute thing mm. but it's so special to me because yeah i fell in love with drama for the second time in my life <laughs> <laughs> so emotional um what was the question <laughs> how did into the mask start yeah ali started it and i and i ran with it and i just refused i just refused to let her take a break <laughs> <laughs> well that's interesting how you say love because one of the questions I thought, you know, oh, general biographical, because mm. this is quite, in a way, biographical, because as you yeah. know, sh uh, Shane, the, the hitch, the kick, is the uh, is What are you saying? Hitch. <laughs> what am I saying, Ryan? Um, Give me the rest of the sentence. We'll find the <laughs> <it> wrong. 
Well, the, the thing about it is we are going to meet again in ten years' time. That's complete. Oh yeah, yeah. That's complete the, the second part. That's the that's yeah. What is the word? Yeah. That's the the that's the linchpin. Yeah. That that, that holds his podcast together. How's that? Yeah, the linchpin. Um, this uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a journey through time. Journey through time. <laughs> Who or what led you onto the long bittered road of the arts? Well. Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, as a kid, like, I used to watch, you know, Jim Carrey. Mm. Go figure, I love Commedia. How did it take me until I was, like, into my mid-twenties to figure that out? Um, <laughs> idiot. Uh, <laughs> um, so I used to watch Jim Carrey movies, you know, yeah. and, I mean, I could I could quote every line of The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, yeah. Liar, Liar. Mm. Oh, just, you know, all of these movies from when I was young. Boy, I loved them, and I and I still do, and I still love. And I, you know, sometimes I watch something like Dumb and Dumber. I watch them with adults, and they're like, "Oh, I can't believe I like this," and I'm like, "I can't believe you don't like this anymore." <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he, I would have to say, without me realizing it, for 20 mm. years, was a massive influence on the art. All the stories that I tell and the style of performance that I do. So you know, you, I can't, I can't not say him. But but at a more personal level, uh, you know, I wouldn't be interested in drama if it weren't for uh, my high school drama teacher, oh. which also then kind of ties back into the fact that you know I teach yeah. drama at school, at high schools. I go in and I do these workshops. I'm a qualified drama teacher. I mean. It's really, it's a really, in fact, I don't have a terrible memory and I don't remember a lot of really specific moments from my childhood, but I have this one very vivid memory. I must have been 16 and we're in drama and we're doing whatever we're doing, you know, we're having fun. I'm probably farting on stage. <laughs> God, I'm terrible. And I, and I just kind of got to the end of the class and I, and I turned to my drama teacher, Miss Derpich, Jenny D., there's probably some people listening who know who she is. She inspired a lot of, a lot of love for the arts. Mm. Uh, you know, I turned to her and I was, you know, in the typical teenage voice, Oh, miss, you got the best job ever, hey? And, you know, she just kind of laughs and she's like, What do you mean? And I was like, Well, you get to come and, like, hang out with us all day. You just have fun and laugh. You know, she kind of rolls her eyes because <laughs> it's such hard work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she kind of rolls her eyes and she's like, oh, you don't even know. <laughs> you know. But thank you. I do love my job. Kind of, you know, gives me this sort of yeah. response like, one day you'll understand. <laughs> you know, but I, that's, I've never forgotten how much she laughed at school and how much I laughed and how much we, you know, as a, as a community laughed and had fun and she was always really stressed you know now I'm thinking about it did she laugh that much her back was always sore from stress you know she used to do these school productions you know at a school with no money and no support and nothing but a pocket full of dreams and really dedicated students but I'm, I'm sure she was happy I'm now now I'm going boy there was a lot of stress but I'm certain she was happy so that's a huge that was a huge impact on me and when I was at film school and I was missing theatre you know, I didn't, I didn't apply for WAPA. Mm. I applied without question for this double degree, contemporary performance and education. It was like, that's, that's what you've got to do. Because like, it's like, I missed theatre, and I was thinking back to like how much fun I had in high school. It was like, it was like a no-brainer. Like I had to do this double degree. I had to have a teaching qualification 
because that was the best, you know, and she was happy and she was having fun. And that's what I was missing at film school. Like I wasn't having the fun. It's probably because I was making very serious films. But, uh, you know, it all ties, it all ties in, I guess. Oh, yeah, so, uh, and I get to reflect on life like this. Thank you for this yeah. uh, interview. It's really wonderful. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, well, hang on. You, you did an audition for Whopper? No, no. Wow. No, no, I just went, no, I've got to do that course. Yeah. Like, I didn't even look at other courses. Like, when I, when I started searching what do I want to do, yeah. as soon as that one popped up, it was like a penny drop. Is that what they say? Penny drop? Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Oh, yeah, oh. that's what I've got to do. <laughs> mobile phone. I don't know if you guys hear that mobile phone on the speaker, but perfect timing. <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, the only reason why I bring up, because I know, like, every man and dog that I knew did. Yeah, yeah. But Whopper at the time was very big on musical theatre and still uh, really yeah. still is. So, you know, my, my, my impression of Whopper was musical theatre, which is not what I do. I can't sing and I can't dance. At times I question whether or not I can act. Um, oh. Yeah, so... So, um, yeah, it just didn't, never felt like it was a thing that I was supposed to do. Which is tough, you know, in a little place like Perth. Yeah. You know, Whopper's a very big name that can help, you know, get you very far, but but it just wasn't right for me and it doesn't make sense. I'd already done film school which wasn't right for me. So it didn't make sense to to pin my hat to something that didn't feel right to me. I'm interested like film, mm. is there anything from your practice now that you Oh, film school helped me with this? For a period before I for, before I fell in love with Commedia dell'arte, I was a big fan of, of Robert Lepage, mm. who uses a lot of projection and multimedia in his live performance. And that was kind of the angle I was going down, you know? And I really loved animation. I remember I was creating this one story mm. uh, for a long time, and I put a lot of effort into this. <laughs> if I were to bring up the documents on my computer, you'd be like, oh my God, so much. Uh, I was creating this one story, and this was kind of before like Marvel movies really took off it was kind of the early days of those and i was looking and i was like man comic books are great and i was creating this one play that would take place like a comic book with projected uh like comic backgrounds that the artists perform in front of as comic book characters and the whole idea would be like superpowers would be animated while and i was looking for dancers to be a part of this um to be a part of this performance so they, you know, you have these dancers doing like, sort of like, you know, martial art moves yeah. or some, some sort of acrobatic, um, and then the animation, you know, creates like fire coming from the hands or, you know, or, or you know, the person flies and, the, you know, the comic book frames behind them, you know, move and, yeah. and travel. So it's like they're flying up. And, and there's a few artists that I've seen since then who've done this, this style of performance much, much better than I was ever capable of. But there was a period when I was still forming who I was as an artist, where that was the path I was going down. Very, very modern, very high-tech, very difficult. And it's so strange that now I've fallen into something so traditional. Yeah. But, you know, I was interested in that stuff, and I was kind of, like, somewhat capable of that stuff. So I was working towards that stuff, but I never fell in love with that stuff the way I fell in love with Commedia. Just one of those things. Once you find, and if there's any like aspiring artists who are listening to this, um, I think it's really important. Like, do as much as you can and explore as much as you can, and, and, and be really free and fluid. And at some point, 
you'll find what you love, exactly what that is, and then just chase that. And just be a master of that one thing. Because if you keep spreading yourself too thin, eventually, you know, you won't have a place as an mm. artist. And, and someone might give the complete opposite advice to me, and that's just as valid, because I'm only one person, only one opinion. But, you know, once you'll have a light bulb moment, I think, I, I truly think everyone will have a, a light bulb moment as an artist, and then it's like, boom, that's what I've got to do. And maybe it'll fade, and maybe it'll be a new light bulb moment, I don't know. But for me, in my experience, and therefore the advice that I can give is, yeah. is keep trying everything, be open, be free, be fluid, and then when it comes, it'll come and you'll know it's there, so. I, I feel I like, I, I, I always just... feel like I don't answer questions, no, no, I go somewhere no, else. And, no, uh, no, no, well, <laughs> I'm scatterbrained, that's what I said. I just, okay, oh yes, yes, time is, uh, yeah, we're almost, but I've got oh, two no. more, two more I'm questions. I'm having too much fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure, I think you've sort of covered this, but I'll ask this anyway, does your art serve a purpose? Uh, yeah, I think all art serves a purpose. Sometimes it's to inform, sometimes it's to reflect, sometimes it's to connect, sometimes it's to entertain. We kind of touched on this before yeah. and, I, and I said that thing about, you know, art must be compelling. I actually stole that and I'm feeling really guilty about it, so I'm glad this came up again. This is a, that actually came from a conversation I had just last night with, oh, wow. my, with my housemate, who's also an artist and performer and writer. Tyler Jacob Jones, wonderful, mm. wonderful guy, much better artist than I am. And, and this whole idea of art needing to be entertaining or compelling, that actually came from him. So if you're listening, Tyler, I'm sorry, I stole your, <laughs> I stole your bit. <laughs> but, you know, credit where credit's due. But yeah, so I think all art does something, but, but what every piece of art does is different. Yeah. So you can't sit back and say, like, all art informs, you know, all art connects. You know, I think I think there is a you know there's a plethora of values and purpose and strengths to all art, and and you know which things they pick and choose or, or what you know comes to mind for each piece of art will be different. And and then again, there'll be also be some variation between the you know the audience or the viewers of that art as well. But all art has a purpose, certainly. I don't think if if, if there's an art that's without purpose. It's not really art. Like mm. it's maybe it's an activity, but even then, like has a purpose for the yeah. person doing that. You know, whether it's them honing their their skills, like it's still art. Like someone sitting at home with a sketchbook drawing. You know, no one else might ever see that, but there's a purpose to that art, yeah. and it's and it's training. It's skills based, and it's very personal for that artist. So yeah, all art it has to. It has to, whether it's a purpose for others or for the self, it can't not have purpose, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. No one does, no one does anything for no reason, you know? I mean, if I sit on the couch watching Netflix, it's not art, mm. but if I sit on the couch watching Netflix and just chewing, chewing time up, yeah. right? Like, I'm doing that not because, I, not because I wanted to do nothing, but because I just wanted downtime. Like, everything we do has purpose. Mm can't do anything without purpose so therefore all art has purpose because uh, you're doing it i'm not thinking human. but could i be more specific i'm being very broad <laughs> do, we want me, do you want me to dive into something more specific in the way we talk about art well, we can. then it just makes me think are humans the greatest art project of them all 
Elaborate. Elaborate. Um, I don't know. I just in the in the like in the divine sense, like like if there's a if there's a god, if there's a creator, um, you know, and that's a big if. But if if there is something of that sense, then um, I guess you could say like we are, yeah, we are like we are one giant art project of of some sort of you know, if the divine being, then of that divine being, Hmm. you know, he creates a thing that creates a thing. Or even nature. Or it creates a thing that creates a thing. Um, or nature. I'm yeah. just I'm just thinking because... Well, I think nature's a much better artist than humans. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't... Nature nature creates without as much destruction. I'm getting real comfy here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got my cat. I've got my feet up for those who are listening. Well, you want to get comfy for our last question. Oh, yes. The last question. So, Shane... As we somewhat agreed, in the year 2027, mm. when we meet again, mm. don't know where, don't know how, but somewhere, what would you like to plug? Um, the hole in the ozone layer. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no. I'd like to plug up the gaps in the water barriers that keep the water out. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, well. It's interesting. It's interesting because I feel like there are two paths, and I don't know which one I want to walk down in my future, mm. or which or which one will open up more and therefore will be the one I walk down. Because I feel like when I think about the future, there's a part of me that's like, oh, I'd love to be this like well-recognized, well-established performer. Mm. You know, that's that's sells tickets to shows easily you know or, or to movies or what you know like Jim Carrey God, you know like if I could be the next Jim Carrey <laughs> boy what a dream um, you know so there's a part of me that wants to be that in my future you know and then there's another part of me that wants to be like the go to guy around the world for Commedia dell'arte training mm. and knowledge you know I want to be that person you know like Antonio Fava was to me and so many others there's a part of me that wants to be like that mm. again you know, for, for new generations. But I don't know if that's 10 years away. That kind of goal is probably more like 40 years from now. You know, if I think about... Maybe not 40. God, I'd be quite old. I'd be, I'd be 71. That's not, actually, that's not far off uh, Antonio Fava's age. But, you know, maybe yeah. maybe being in that position, you know, is, is 30 years. You know, 20 years, 30 years. 10, you know, would only be 41. Antonio Fava will probably still be alive in 10 years. Um, still, and he'll probably still be teaching. Mm. You know, if I if I know him as well as I think I do, he won't be retired in ten years. That's a hard thing to to say. So ten years is such a short time period. You know, it's not far away. Like for some people, yeah. they probably think of ten years as as really really far away, but it's not. Like it's just around the corner. I, mean, I, I remember ten years ago like it was yesterday. Yesterday, ten years ago. Oh right. Oh. No, I'm thinking of 10 years, yeah. Yeah, like 10, 10 years ago, I can tell you exactly what I was doing. Yeah. I was sitting at Alexandria Library and I was reading Lewis Nara plays because I was studying film and missing theatre. I remember, like I used to go when I was 20, that's what I would do. I'd, I'd, finish, I'd finish film school, I'd go to the library in Perth, in Northbridge. I'd go to the... And you couldn't hire out the, the, the plays. They, they weren't to be hired out. It's weird. It's what? A, it's a library, but you couldn't... <laughs> You couldn't hire them out. They wouldn't let you. Um, so it's more like an archive of plays, yeah. right? So I'd take a book. Yeah. I'd sit on the couch. 
and I just read. And I, and I read every single one of Lewis Nara's plays. His was the first play I ever did. Oh. And that's when I fell in love. Um, so, you know, I have a special yeah. soft spot in my heart for Lewis Nara, Louis Nara. And I read every single one of his plays. That's what I was doing when I was 20. And it was just yesterday. So the next 10 years is, is that's no time away. Like, it's so soon. And, I, and if we do this thing again, and I hope we do, yeah. I really sincerely do, I will remember this interview <laughs> like it's yesterday. And I'll, and I'll remember these cats. And I will hope that they're still with me, you know. And I will remember these awful red couches that I got from the side of the road. That'd be quite nice. I will probably remember the pot plants I put in the corner that, for the life of me, I just can't keep alive and are slowly dying. Do you know, like, all yeah. of this stuff in my life today will seem so recent, like 10 years ago did. And if you're a young person listening to this, man, move quick, because time flies by exponentially faster the older you get. And I say that and I'm only 31. I, I can't imagine how people who are 50 feel um, because, boy, they feel what I'm feeling 10 times stronger. So 10 years from now, yeah, I mean, I would love to be spruiking that I'm, I'm running an internationally recognised course, you know, for one month of the year where people from all over the world come and train with me here in little old Perth, you know, in some performance space that I can get for a fraction of the price because... <laughs> Because people just want me in their space because I'm so loved. But 10 years is very, very soon and I just don't think that's where I'll be. Or, you know, I'd love to be spruiking some, you know, some big show or big movie mm. that, where people are like, oh my God, like I heard Shane McMullen's coming to town. We've got to see that show. Like people do with, with, other, with other artists. <laughs> ah, boy. But, you know, I don't know. Oh, well, here's to 10 years. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, who's the, who's the 10 years? Who's the 10 years? Here's the 10, ten years. years. It's going to be great.